2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. That's uh, so where we're going to spend our time today. Uh, I think everyone here is pretty familiar with the phrase, a hill to die on. And when we use that phrase, we're, we're talking about beliefs we have that we're not going to let go of no matter what. Uh, and so you might think of your own personal hills to die on. What are those beliefs that you hold so dearly that you'll not let them go? I, I've got a few myself. Since you asked, I'll share them with you. Hill to die on. Uh, number one, seltzer is carbonated sadness. It's a hill to die on. You can disagree, but you're just sad, that's all. Seltzer is gross. Uh, hill to die on number two. Um, mariachis are fantastic. A mariachi band, get out of here right now. Out of this world, unbelievable. I love mariachis. Hill to die on number three. When we get to heaven and Jesus hosts the, the great wedding feast of the Lamb, it's going to take place in a Brazilian steakhouse. I'm confident of this. These are my hills to die on. Eh, there's others too. You might have some also. I'm confident that you do. Uh, the reality is th these are points where we might disagree and we're not going to back down. And we all know what it's like to disagree with other people. Uh, we live in a culture right now that is defined by disagreement. It's defined by division and separation. And that just seems to only be intensifying and the division seems to be growing wider and wider. And everyone around us has taken up sides and has joined in with their team and is, um, well, working to dehumanize the other side of the fence. Uh, and so we, we know what it's like. We know what the culture is like around us in terms of this division and these disagreements. But have we ever stopped to ask the question, how should being a follower of Jesus inform the way I engage in disagreements? Should the fact that I follow Jesus impact my speech when I engage an opponent? Should it impact uh, my behavior when I engage an opponent? Should it, uh, in, should it impact my choice to enter into the fray when it comes to these sorts of disagreements and divisions? Shouldn't Jesus have something to say to his followers when it comes to disagreeing with others? You know, so many of us are fighters these days. We, we disagree, and we do it with venom and vitriol, and, and we're convinced that our side is the righteous side, the other side is the wicked side, and so we can use that to justify some of our harsh attacks and our harsh tones. What tends to happen in our disagreements is we dehumanize the other side, and, and we're quick to lump them into logical extremes. Well, if you believe this, then you must be a monster, that sort of thing happens all too often. Especially when it comes to people who oppose the gospel, people who want to, may want to take away rights or want to silence a Christian voice in the public market or, or whatever the thing is. Those are the people who we so often get so worked up about, so angry at. Well, the passage we're studying today is going to mess with us a lot. Because there's a lot to say about the way we engage opponents. How do we disagree? How do we fight against those, especially those who oppose the gospel, who want nothing to do with Christ, who think this is all a myth, who would see, even call what we believe and do harmful? 
How do we engage with those types of people? You want to talk about relevance when it comes to Scripture? This is 2019 here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 14, because it speaks to us about how we engage those whom we disagree with. Uh, this is a continuation of Paul's encouragement and, um, uh, and strengthening of Timothy. We started 2 Timothy just a few weeks ago. It's been a little stop and start a little bit. Uh, so let me just give you a quick reminder of where we've been and where we are. The letter opens with Paul pumping Timothy full of courage and strength and bravery, reminding him of who he is, who invested the gospel in him. Remember his mother and his grandmother? And calling him to hold to this strength. And from there, Paul then, in chapter 1, tells Timothy, look, don't be ashamed of me, don't be ashamed of the gospel, but suffer for the gospel. Be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. And so from the middle of chapter 1 to the middle of chapter 2, it's this long instruction on enduring suffering. The last time we were in 2 Timothy, a couple weeks ago, uh, Paul's back at it again with Timothy, telling him, hey, endure the suffering. Like a good soldier, like an athlete, like a farmer. Uses these word pictures to help Timothy understand what endurance looks like. And now he shifts his subject matter a bit. Now he's not talking about enduring suffering but how to interact with those who cause the suffering. Remember Timothy's context. He's leading a church in the city of Ephesus, and that church is under heavy and regular attack by false teachers who hate the gospel and who oppose Christ and who defy Timothy every chance they get. This is a years-long endeavor. So Paul has told Timothy, opens the letter, hey, be strong, be courageous, endure suffering, and now, what we're studying today, here's how you engage with those who are inflicting the suffering on you. So my goal today in preaching this passage is to teach you how to fight. But we don't fight as the world fights. We fight as those who belong to Christ. That looks very different. I want to show you three principles that are going to make you a better fighter today. And they come from 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Follow along with me as I read. Paul writes this. He says, remind them of these things. Charge them before God not to fight about words. This is useless and leads to the ruin of those who listen. Be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. Avoid irreverent and empty speech, since those who engage in it will produce even more godlessness, and their teaching will spread like gangrene. Hymenaeus and Philetus are among them. They have departed from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and are ruining the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, bearing this inscription, The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also those of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. So if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 
But reject foolish and ignorant disputes because you know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. There's a lot going on here, uh, but we're going to break it apart into some bite-sized chunks, and together we're going to pull out three principles that are going to make us better fighters in the arena of disagreement. So how are we going to be better fighters? Principle number one to be a better fighter is this, don't fight. That's the principle. You want to be a better fighter as a follower of Jesus Christ, don't fight. Paul starts this section off telling Timothy to remind the church of these things. What are the these things he's to remind the church of? Well, the these things is all that stuff that came before chapter 1 and first part of chapter 2. Remind them, be courageous, suffer for the gospel, commit the word of God to other people who will also teach endure like a good soldier athlete farmer all that remind them of these things keep it in front of them that they would endure suffering and charge them or warn them before god not to fight about words i want you to turn on your imagination machine with me and let's pretend we roll in here on a sunday morning and, and i'm unusually somber no cracks about seltzer or anything like that and i i tell you this i say south shore baptist church uh, I have a very important message to deliver to you. And this message carries such weight and importance that we will be joined today by the physical manifestation of the triune God. I don't know what that would look like, but let's imagine all of a sudden there's a great wind in the room and then there's this bright light. It's brighter than anything you've ever experienced, but it doesn't hurt your eyes. And all of a sudden, you just know somehow that we are in the presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in that holy, awesome, eternal moment, I step up to the stage and I deliver my message to you. And my message is this. South Shore Baptist Church, I charge you before God. Do not fight about words. Is that what you would expect to hear? A holy visitation. And I say, don't fight about words. That's not at all on your radar. You're thinking we're, we're getting something different, something, something apocalyptic, some, who knows what. But correcting the way we fight, we argue, we bicker. In the pre you took the presence of God. You called him from his throne room to this place to give us that message? Absolutely. And the fact that it seems like a small thing to us says more about us than it does the message. It says that we are way too okay with angry, vitriolic, venomous fighting. And we don't have the mind of God on this thing. Warn the church before God. Do not fight about words. Now, he goes on to make more sense of that, explain that to us in the next few verses. And for those of you that love symmetry, well, verses 14 through 19 are for you. Paul gives us a pattern 
that is repeated in the way he approaches this subject matter in verses 14 through 19. I'll show you the pattern here on the screen, and it might help you as we read and as we make sense of it. The pattern has three parts to it. Paul first forbids fighting. Second, he gives negative reasons why we should not fight. And then third, he gives godly alternatives. Rather than fighting, here's what you should be about. Here's what you should be doing. So he follows this pattern twice in a row. Verses, beginning of verse 14, don't fight. End of verse 14, here's why it's bad. Verse 15, here's your godly alternative. And then he repeats that in verses 16 to 19. So we're going to lump these together. We're going to follow the pattern rather than just walking line by line through this. But let's follow the pattern together. What is it that Paul is forbidding in this passage? Well, is he forbidding all disagreements or debates? He says, do not fight about words in verse 14. In the verse 16, he says, avoid irreverent and empty speech. I don't think he is forbidding all disagreements or all debates. That seems like a bit of an overreach. But rather, he's trying to give general instruction to the church and to the church's leaders not to use the tactics of false teachers or gospel opponents in their senseless arguing. Paul's concern is that that sort of heretical nonsense is going to distract the church and damage the church in its gospel work. Don't fight like your opponents. Don't get drugged down into the muck with them. So I forbid this. In the presence of God, don't fight about words. Don't get involved in irreverent and empty speech. So what does that look like? I think if we were to look at Paul's letter here and look at 1 Timothy, as he references these false teachers over and over again, we can pick up a few characteristics that might help us identify in our own lives what this irreverent speech or these fighting about words, what it looks like. I would say one that has a particular style. It's a, it's a type of disagreement or fighting that is vitriolic. It's nasty. You're going for the jugular. In, it, it's just a verbal spar, but you're trying to put down the other person. That style of fighting is unchristian. Also, I would say one, another common characteristic is a preoccupation with arguing or with opponents. It's something you think about often. It's always on your radar. It's always that you can't have another conversation, even with a friend, without bringing up things you disagree with, things you dislike in the world, not necessarily with your friend, but just in the world in general. You're just always preoccupied with this sort of anger and disagreement and fighting. That's unchristian. Another characteristic is if the goal of your fighting is not to love your enemy, but to defeat your enemies. Now, sometimes we'll justify nasty fighting by saying, well, if I've got to love them enough to tell them the truth. Uh, yeah, that's, that's right, but it's the wrong application. First Timothy chapter 1, Paul said the goal of the gospel is love. The goal of the gospel is love. The goal of the gospel is not to lop off the head of your opponent. That's not gospel work. And so if your style of fighting is nasty, you're preoccupied with it, you're trying to destroy your enemy, these are unchristian ways of relating to another person, any other person. And in the presence of God, you are warned, stop it. Why is this 
type of arguing so dangerous? That's what Paul gives us next, these negative reasons to stop this type of fighting. First of all, middle of verse 14, Paul says, this is useless and leads to the ruin of those who listen. He's not going to tiptoe around the issue at all. Why should I not argue? Why should I not fight this way? Should I not, why should I not go on the attack? Because what you're doing is useless. Look, you're feverish, foamy at the mouth. You feel like you're contending for the gospel, but what you do when you fight that way is actually useless. Not only that, it ruins people. That's not acceptable for people who follow Jesus Christ. And that's not the only damage it inflicts. Verses 16 through 19 Paul continues on and he says, those who engage in this sort of fighting will produce even more godlessness and their teaching will spread like gangrene. Hymenaeus and Philetus are among them. They've departed from the truth saying that the resurrection has already taken place and are ruining the faith of some. So it's useless. It ruins people. Verse 16, Paul tells us, it produces godlessness. It is a godless way of speaking and it produces godlessness. Also, it's like a poison. It spreads like gangrene. You think you're contending for the gospel. You're, you're spreading poison in the way you attack people. And then finally, it ruins your faith in the faith of others. And Paul offers as an example two names, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Hymenaeus we've been introduced to before. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul identifies Hymenaeus as an opponent in the church, an opponent to the gospel, and he's one of the people that Paul says, I have turned over to Satan. Meaning, we've implemented some church discipline. He's no longer a part of the assembly. We're praying for his return. But for now, we have separated from him. And here we are, approximately four years later, Hymenaeus is still a thing. He's still an opponent, still an enemy of the gospel, and an enemy of Timothy in particular. And he's got this guy Philetus on his side. They are long-term troublemakers, always on the attack. And look, Paul points out one part of their error. In verse 17, he says that Hymenaeus and Philetus hold that the resurrection has already taken place. Now, that's not the resurrection of Jesus, but it's the resurrection of believers, so it seems they're teaching this heresy that Christ has already returned and the resurrection of the dead in Christ has already happened and now we're living in this different time or whatever. But I want you to pay attention to how little attention Paul gives to the nature of the disagreement. What's his focus on? His focus is on the way Timothy responds. These guys are enemy number one in the church at Ephesus. And that doesn't justify a different way of responding. It doesn't justify getting nasty with them. What it requires of the follower of Jesus is to not fight because it's going to ruin you and it's going to destroy the faith of others. When you get into that situation, you bring people down. There's nothing good that's going to come of it. So don't fight. Stay out of it. Why? It's useless. Ruins people. All kinds of damage. But why wouldn't we fight? Even when most precious doctrines are attacked, why wouldn't we respond in some sort of visceral way? Aren't we supposed to guard the gospel? Well, yeah, we're supposed to guard the gospel, but not in 
a way that looks like Hymenaeus and Philetus. You see, the third part of Paul's argument is he gives us godly alternatives. Rather than fighting like these others do, here's how followers of Christ respond. So he gives you two godly alternatives in these verses. The first godly alternative to fighting, teach God's truth. From verse 15, teach God's truth. Rather than fighting with these people, Paul says, be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. So there's your first alternative to this pointless fighting. Rather than fight, teach. Does that command sound familiar at all? It should, because just a little bit ago, chapter 2, verse 2, Paul has told Timothy the same thing. In the face of suffering, commit the gospel to other people who will also teach it. Paul has this repeated pattern. Hey, when suffering comes your way, Timothy, teach the gospel. When opponents come your way and engage you in a fight, teach the gospel. Keep the main thing the main thing. Don't get distracted. We would call it missional drift where we think, oh, my job in life is to destroy these people. That's not what God has saved you and called you for. He has saved you and called you to a gospel ministry. And that means investing the gospel in the lives of others. Friend, do not get distracted from the beautiful gospel work God has given you to do. And don't be ashamed of it either. That's what Paul tells Timothy here. Don't be ashamed of this. A worker who doesn't need to be ashamed. Now, again, earlier in chapter 1, he's told Timothy not to be ashamed, but that was a reference to the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. He's not speaking of the gospel here. He's speaking of the method we employ in these disagreements. Don't be ashamed of what God has called you to do. Don't be ashamed of the path the Lord lays out for you in the midst of this conflict. But walk in obedience, Timothy. Teach God's truth. Keep your gospel work at the primary. There's a second godly alternative. It comes from verse 19. The second godly alternative is trust God's control. So you're going to teach God's truth, and you're going to trust God's control. Timothy, you're not in control. God is. He's going to take care of the situation. And to make this point, Paul quotes from the book of Numbers, chapter 16. Look at verse 19 here. He says, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm. Doesn't matter. Hymenaeus, Philetus, doesn't matter who they are. God's solid foundation stands firm. And it bears this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. Those quotes come from Numbers chapter 16. I imagine that when this letter was read publicly for the first time at the church in Ephesus, and they heard those lines, there was a collective, oh, because they know the reference, they get it. Numbers chapter 16 is the story about a bad guy named Korah. Korah opposes Moses, and he opposes Aaron. And so what he does is he rallies together 250 leaders from the nation of Israel to oppose Moses and Aaron. And his platform is, who do they think they are? We're all holy before the Lord. Why do we need these leaders? They've brought us from a land flowing with milk and honey, and they've put us in the wilderness where we're starved and we're dying of thirst. And, and this is all, it's also that Moses can sit on this throne, so to speak. Who does he think he is? We're going to overthrow him. 
Moses catches wind of it, goes to the Lord, and the Lord says, Moses, tomorrow, tell them, tomorrow, uh, I'm going to sort out who is mine and who is not, who is holy and who is not. That's where that line comes from. The Lord knows who are his. And so what happens the next morning is Moses tells the people, get away from the tents of Korah and his henchmen. And they do that. And then the earth opened up beneath them. Korah, his henchmen, and their families fell into the gaping earth, and the earth closed them over again. God's solid foundation stands firm. He knows those who are his. Look, the ground under Korah didn't open up on account of Moses. Moses didn't do anything to make that happen. All he did was obey God. He went to God and and cried for help. Moses didn't do anything. He doesn't have power in himself. He wasn't, he, he, he's not this big earth mover guy and does these. That's not Moses. But God has always defended his own name successfully, and he does it without our help. God is his own defender, and his vindication does not come from you and I getting into filthy arguments with gospel opponents. A.W. Tozer said in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, God needs no defenders. He is the eternal undefended. A God who must be defended is one who can help us only while someone is helping him. And such a God couldn't command the respect of intelligent men. He could only excite their pity. He's the eternal undefended. So don't fight. Let the ragers rage. God will take care of his opponents. God will take care of his servants. Your task is to focus on the gospel work he has given to you. The first principle that's going to make you a better fighter, don't fight. Second principle is this. Cultivate holiness. Don't fight. Cultivate holiness. Your own personal holiness. You want to grow in it, advance in it. You're going to cultivate your own holiness before the fight and you'll respond out of your holiness in the midst of the conflict. So in verses 20 and 21, Paul gives an illustration that's meant to help us better understand what he's just told us. And we could, uh, we could lump 20 and 21 together with 14 through 19. It could all be one big piece. I've separated it out. Um, I think it helps us with our understanding a bit. And so this is the illustration of the vessels Rather than vessel, you would think household utensils, things like that. And so look at verse 20 with me. Paul says, Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels or utensils, but also those of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. So if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he'll be a special instrument, set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. So let's make sense of this illustration. He says, first, we've got a large house. What what does the large house represent? The large house represents the local church. He says, in that large house are gold and silver vessels and wood and clay vessels. What are the vessels in the large house? Those vessels are the people within the church. The house is the church. The vessels are the people. And among us, some Uh, are more common devices. Others are 
set apart for holy use. Maybe this might help if I give an illustration to the illustration. Members of my family uh, over the years have had various foot issues that required soaking the foot to fix it. So we have a dedicated foot soak bucket at our house. If I served Thanksgiving turkey in the foot soak bucket, we would have a problem. Doesn't matter how much I wash the foot soak bucket, bleach it, put it in the dishwasher, take it to the car wash. Doesn't matter what I do. It, it has foot cooties about it or whatever. And you don't want to eat such a nice meal or any meal out of the foot soak bucket. It is intended for dishonorable use. Now, I don't think Paul has foot soaked buckets in mind when he says this. Paul has something a little saltier in mind whenever he gives this illustration. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I like Paul. Sometimes he, uh, he's, just a, he's a bit irreverent. He makes your eyebrows get big in different points. But here the point is, in, in our homes, we have some things that are used for dishonorable purposes, and we have other things that are held and set apart for these really special purposes. And that's who we are to be in the family of faith. We are to be those people set apart for these special purposes used by God. He's not creating two different classes of people. He's just saying, look, there are some Christians who are unholy and those who are holy, and those who are holy are useful to the Lord. Those who are unholy, there is a path to holiness. There is a way to get away from this dishonor and come to a place where you, in your holiness, in your Christ-likeness, you are set apart and useful to God. When we engage in vitriolic disagreements, we are useless. Now, Paul's already told us that. He, he strengthens that argument with this illustration. But if we want to engage properly when conflict arises, then you and I will pay attention day by day to our personal holiness. You'll be useful then. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the best way for you to be useful to God in a world that is increasingly divided and uncivil is to grow in your personal holiness? What better option do you have? Join the fray? add your voice to the pool of ignorance that makes up so many disagreements? Are these going to be better options? God shows us the better way here. Instead of fighting, cultivate your holiness. It's a problem when Christians are preoccupied with the sin of other people and unconcerned with our own holiness. It's not that being concerned with our holiness then gives us a platform to bash people who are sinners. Far from it. Paying attention to our holiness informs the way we engage altogether so that we know how to bring the love of Christ to a disagreement. We know when to pull the ripcord and get out of there. We know when to engage in grace and mercy and compassion. The holy Christian will stand in the truth of Jesus Christ and love the person across from them all at the same time. How do we pursue holiness? It's, it's not a magic formula. Holiness is the day-to-day -day result of walking with Christ in His Word. So what's your Bible intake like? What's your Bible intake versus media intake like? If you want to increase in your holiness, you've got to eat the Word of God on a daily basis. 
And if you want to grow in your holiness, you need to sit with the Lord in prayer. And some of your praying just needs to be listening, not just coming to God with a shopping cart saying, here's what I need and here's what they need. It's just sitting with the Lord, letting his word simmer in your heart, thinking on the truths that you've taken in through Scripture. These things shape our minds, the way we think. They shape our words, the way we speak. They shape our hearts, the things we do. Holiness comes from time with God. Then our lives are shaped and patterned after Him. And then we're useful. When the conflict arises, we're useful. When the conflict comes, we know how to engage, how to respond. Don't be a foot-soaked bucket Christian. (laughs) Be useful to God by cultivating your holiness. How can we be better fighters? Don't fight. Second, cultivate your holiness. Third and finally, extend the gospel. Extend the gospel to your opponents. So in this final part of this passage, verse 22, Paul uses a familiar formula, the flee-pursue formula. He tells Timothy, flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with all those who Call on the Lord from a pure heart. Uh, does verse 22 sound familiar? We're pl- playing a lot of this game today. Does, does this sound familiar at all? It should sound familiar to you. I hope it does because just a few weeks ago, as we were wrapping up 1 Timothy, we had similar language. If you've got your Bible open, I want you to flip maybe just one or two pages to the left to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. And here's what Paul says to Timothy. 1 Timothy 6.11 But you, man of God, flee from these things and pursue, there's the formula, flee, pursue, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Now, back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Flee from youthful passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. How awesome is that? That Paul is repeating what he's already said to Timothy years earlier. Now that doesn't mean that Paul's forgetful or unimaginative, but rather it speaks to the importance of this instruction. If you're going to chase after something, chase after, pursue something, let it be righteousness and faith, and love, and peace. These four things are characteristics of a Christian's life that influence the lives of others. They're expressed in the context of relationship. They're even expressed in the context of conflict. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. When Hymenaeus is in your face, and he's got his cronies with him, flee youthful passions. Don't let anger drive the bus but rather you pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And not only should you do that on your own, Timothy, but I love this detail at the end of verse 22. Do it along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. This is a whole church endeavor. When a church gets this wrong, when a church pursues youthful passions, look, that's not video games and things like that. We're talking about vitriolic responses in a time of conflict just responding with the flesh or with your temper in the moment. When a church does that, oh, the damage is catastrophic. My oldest daughter uh, is 
uh, just starting her freshman year of college, and uh, she's at a Christian school, and they had this little, um, this community fair at, on the campus the other night, and all these different organizations and churches were there, you know, just giving out information, giving out goodies, and sharing about who they are, and certainly the churches are there because they want college students to come to their church. So this one church in particular, really nice people, handed my daughter a card with a smiley face on you, and it said, God loves you. And she thought, well, that's sweet. And she walked away, and then she looked at the card closer, and underneath the smiley face that said, God loves you, uh, in really small font were these words, something to the effect of, and if you reject him, it would have been better if you had never been born. <laughs> Someone paid for that. Someone had those printed. And they thought, this would be a great idea. This will advance the gospel if we put this kind of nastiness in the hands of college students. And the damage is catastrophic. I mean, my daughter's not leaving the faith. She's not going to that church. Um, but we've seen examples. We know examples of churches that major on arguing, major on fighting. And the bottom line is this. No one comes to faith in Christ by losing an argument. No one comes to faith in Christ by losing a debate. The greatest evangelists are not the people who have the greatest arguments, who shut down opponents of the gospel, who silence them, and who uphold biblical... Good. That's not... The great evangelist is the one who cultivates holiness, walks in obedience to God, doesn't engage in the nastiness, but rather extends the gospel by pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Paul continues the same line of thinking in verse 24. Look at verse 24. He says, The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone. Several years ago, there was a season of my life where I, I wrote that on a piece of paper and taped it to the top of my desk. I had to be reminded daily of the kind of person God wants me to be. And even when conflict was on the other side of the desk, I've got to remember the Lord's servant must not quarrel, must be gentle to to everyone. Are you a servant of the Lord? If you're a follower of Christ, you sure are. Verse 24 is your verse, your verse, like it or not. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, instructing his opponents with gentleness. If you want, just take a marker and, and cross out that part. That doesn't have any relevance to our lives today, instructing opponents with gentleness. I don't want to do that. I want to throat punch them. I want to make fun of their faces. I want to insult them. I want to call them names. I want to put them down. I'm not thinking instruct with gentleness. I'm thinking win the fight. But this is how we fight the fight of faith, is by not quarreling, but being gentle and instructing them with gentleness. And why would we do that? Why would we respond that way? When someone's bringing a heat why am I going to respond with light? Verse 25, perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. I would respond with gentleness because this person is not defined by their sin and they are not defined by their disagreement with me. They're defined by their inherent value in Christ, and they need the gospel. Winning a soul is infinitely more important than winning an argument. 
And this person, though they live and think in no way that looks like me or thinks like me, they're made in the image of God. And if they're going to hear the gospel and receive the gospel, they need something different from me than just a hot head and a big mouth. In fact, I would say that Christ-like gentleness towards your opponent is one of the most potent tools in winning a person to Christ. You're going to show them the mercy and grace of Jesus, and then they will be primed to better understand his death on the cross for them. They've seen it already in miniature in you. Now, if you give them a response that looks like hell, that's where their allegiance will remain. If you give them a response that looks like Christ, you ready them to receive the gospel. So you have to extend the gospel in the conflict. You have to give yourself to your opponent. When they erupt, you can then say, I have prayed for you. You can say, you want my shirt? Take my coat also. You can say, here's my other cheek. Oh, you need me to go a mile with you? I'll go two miles with you. Let me wash your feet. Hey, let me lay down my life for you. And in that, they begin to get a taste for the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, it's possible you've had encounters with people who have said they represent Christ and their attitude has been anything but Christ-like. And I hate that. It makes me upset. So here's the challenge for you. The challenge for you is to not define Jesus according to people at our worst, but to look at Jesus for who he is. And this passage gives us an incredible picture of Jesus Christ who loves sinners. And he doesn't love you just to leave you as you are in sin and brokenness. Look, he, Paul says it clearly here that those who oppose the gospel are caught in a trap. Jesus isn't going to love you and leave you in the trap. That's not love. Jesus loves you and sets you free from that trap. He raises you from spiritual death to eternal life. He gives you this. And not because you, you have earned it. Far from it. That's what makes him so beautiful, so amazing, is that he saves the unworthy. He rescues those who are rebels against him, those who are his vehement opponents, he brings grace and salvation to all those who hear the gospel and turn to him. So there's encouragement for you this morning. You may not recognize that you are caught in a trap, but this world is more than what we see. And we have a spiritual enemy that wants your destruction. And as long as he can keep you from Jesus, he is accomplishing his goal. So I want you to see the grace of Jesus here that transcends human nastiness, the grace of Jesus that is more powerful than any trap of Satan. And my hope for you today is that you would turn to him in faith, turn from your sin, and turn to Christ and let him rescue you forever. How amazing is the grace of Jesus that for a person opposed to him, he would give them an interaction with a Christian who would respond with gentleness and love and work towards the goal of turning that opponent into a brother or a sister, into a child of God. So it's evaluation time. 
What's our life like compared to the standard of what Paul has written today? He's told us that when it comes to fighting, we're not going to fight like the world fights. We're going to focus on holiness. Uh, We're going to focus on extending the gospel. So let's examine, do a little self-examination this morning in light of these things. Here's some questions to ask yourself. Are you argumentative? Do you spend too much time ingesting media? A recent poll uh, identified the major causes of a lack of civility in our nation. Top three of the list, politics, social media, news media. Not a surprise to any of us. You, You need to be careful with your intake. Do you live with the perception that you're always right and everyone else is always a moron? Are you harsh with people? When it comes to disagreements, do you bring heat but no light? Here's a good question for evaluation. What are the fights you need to bow out of? Think about conflict you're facing with other people right now. What are the fights that you need to step out of? And I want you to think about this. In a very practical way, what can you do to cultivate your holiness this week? What's one thing you can add and what's one thing you can take away? For example, you might add some scripture memory to your time with Jesus this week. And so you commit to learn a Bible verse or a passage of some sort. Adding that word, eating that word, thinking on it, digesting it, that cultivates holiness in us. It shapes us according to God's word. What's something you could take away? Maybe you examine your media intake, social media, news media, whatever it is, and you find a way to cut that out and instead have more Bible intake. Here's another question. How can you put the message of Christ in front of your opponent this week? Answer number one has to be through prayer. And maybe you're in a situation where you're engaged in a conversation and you can bring the gospel to bear on it. So here's what we've looked at this morning. How do Christians fight? Well, when conflict arises, we don't fight like the world fights. We focus on holiness and we extend the gospel. Above all, we live the words of Jesus who said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called children of God. Let's pray together. Father God, help us to believe this word that we've studied this morning. Help us to take serious your warning about this sort of vitriolic fighting and arguing. When we do it, we feel like we're doing something for the kingdom, but you've told us it's useless. It leads to ruin. It destroys our faith and the faith of others. It's poison. So instead, while the ragers rage, let us be people who invest the word in others. Let us be people who are serious about our personal holiness. Let us be people who believe in the power of the gospel to save even our opponents because it saved us. Who's been a bigger rebel against you than we have? Father, I pray this morning for friends in here that have been hurt by people who carry your name and yet have been uh, nasty. And for those who have experienced that and that's been a barrier to belief, would you give them the wisdom 
to see you for who you are, not for who the church might be at its worst. God, I pray that they would fall in love with you, the God of grace, the God of mercy, the God of love, the God of righteousness, and that you would free them from the trap they've been in, a trap that no doubt Satan has used the church to help tighten up in ways. Let us be a church that knows how to love. Let us be a church that stands in the truth of the gospel, contends for the gospel, but does so not through arguing, but by Christ-like speech and actions to those across from us. Let us be known as a church that takes the gospel so serious that we are willing to love sinners all the way to their salvation. Don't let us join in the rage, but let us walk as your ambassadors, extending the gospel, that heaven would be filled, lives would be changed. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.